from VOA Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. Joining me on the program is VOA Senior Analyst Mohammed El Shanawi. Our special guest on this edition of the program is Thomas Carruthers, Senior Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Our topic, How to Reconcile Democracy and Security Imperatives in U.S. Foreign Policy. It's an age-old problem that has bedeviled democracies, especially the United States. During the Cold War, it was easier to ignore abuses by autocratic regimes because Washington needed allies against the Soviet Union. Those days are long over, but the fundamental dilemma remains, as our guest Thomas Carruthers delineates in a new paper entitled Navigating the Democracy Security Dilemma in U.S. Foreign Policy, Lessons from Egypt, India, and Turkey. No stranger to these VOA microphones, Thomas Carruthers is a leading authority on international support for democracy, human rights, governance, and civil society. He has worked on democracy assistance projects for many organizations and has carried out extensive field research on aid efforts around the world. The paper examines case studies of U.S. policy toward allies, Egypt, India, and Turkey over the past 20 years, spanning several administrations from Republican George W. Bush to Democrat Joe Biden. They quote Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, who has observed that, quote, U.S. presidents have always allowed professed commitments to human rights and democracy to be set aside when other interests or priorities have come to the fore. But the broader shift in U.S. policy today, with its stress on both great power competition and short-term domestic priorities, has made those trade-offs more acute. Some observers say that near-term security interests have taken too much precedence over democracy and human rights. Well, we'll discuss these tensions in the context of Egypt, Turkey, and India with Thomas Carruthers, who joins us via Microsoft Teams. Thomas, welcome back to the program. Carol, good to be back with you. And as always, I'm delighted to welcome my colleague, Mohammed El Shanawi. He's our in-house North Africa and Middle East expert. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'd like to mention that Mohammed just got back from his native Egypt. So, Thomas, you talk about this age-old conundrum, and we can't seem to have it both ways, you know, both promoting our values of human rights, democracy, freedom, and liberty, and at the same time, ensuring our security interests. Talk about why this seems to bedevil the United States. Well, the United States with such a wide range of security interests around the world, at least as the U.S. currently defines them or has long defined them, inevitably finds itself seeking security partnerships with a very wide range of political actors around the world. And if the United States were to try to pick and choose and just say we really only want security partnerships with well-established democracies, that just wouldn't meet U.S. security needs. So really by necessity, at least necessity in terms of how the U.S. has defined its security interests in the world, the United States has a series of very difficult partnerships, whether it's with some of the Gulf states, whether it's with Pakistan, whether it's with Egypt, whether it's with the Philippines, with India, and so forth, where there are some real tensions between U.S. values and interests. And it seems to me in your paper, Thomas, that notwithstanding these tensions and that they've always existed, you're saying that the United States deals with them in too much of an ad hoc way. You're suggesting that U.S. policymakers should 
look at these conflicts or potential trade-offs in a more systematic fashion. Talk about your suggestions. There is a tendency to focus on a case at the time at which the tension or a crisis emerges and say, okay, what are we going to do about renewing military assistance to Egypt right now? And just to focus in on that, the Egypt specialists weigh in. And so country by country, we find ourselves making decisions as a country that don't always reflect kind of the learning from other places. What is some of that learning? Well, let me just note a couple elements of it. One is that we tend to let security interests just kind of coast on autopilot. We might have defined our security interests with Egypt, for example, decades ago and say, we need Egypt for this, that, and the other reason. But those reasons have changed in recent decades. The security situation in the Middle East is very different in some ways today than it was in the 1970s or 80s. So one thing is this kind of autopilot where we just coast along assuming we have maximal security interests with some partners. Another is not to see that sometimes backward motion on democracy in a country affects our hard interests. It's not just a values issue. It affects our hard interests. Case in point, the Philippines. The United States has enjoyed a long, productive security partnership with the Philippines. It was only when the Philippines really got into democratic trouble in the last several years under President Duterte that the partnership between the United States and the Philippines on security grounds began to be questioned. So in other words, backward motion on democracy can lead to backward motion on security partnerships. So it isn't always a tension that you trade off one against the other. Rather, it's backward motion on democracy hurts you on security grounds. There's not enough realization of that. And then a third one is the tendency to overestimate the security downsides of pushing that other government a bit more on democracy. There's the fear that if we raise those uncomfortable issues in conversations with counterparts in that country, they're going to say, we don't want the security cooperation with you. We're not going to be helpful in the things you need. That tends to be an overestimation of that because usually those countries are pursuing their own security interests and doing the things we want them to do because it's in their own interest. They may want to have that base there to secure their own security. They may want to go after a certain terrorist group because it's good for them also. So they're not doing things to us just as a favor. And therefore, if we push them a bit on the democracy side, it's actually not so likely they're just going to drop the ball on the security side, say, nope, sorry, we won't play with you anymore. So those are just some examples of where we tend to make some assumptions over and over again without really questioning them and seeing that the pattern is different if we look a bit more widely. Let's get into some of the case studies. And for that, let me turn to my colleague, Mohammed El Shanawi. Tom, the United States has for decades viewed peace between Egypt and Israel as crucial regional security aspect and provides over $1 billion per year in security assistance to the Egyptian armed forces. Did the Egyptian role in preventing escalation between Israel and Hamas alter the Biden administration pledge not to give blank checks to Sisi as being Trump's favorite dictator? <laughs> Very good question. You're right. The United States has relied on Egypt for many years as a linchpin of its security policies in the Middle East. But of course, again, it's important to see that the region has changed. Egypt is no longer the only country that's trying to work productively with Israel in some ways. There are other Arab countries that are doing so now. And so the idea that Egypt is the island of a security relationship for Israel in this region just doesn't really hold anymore. So it's just a good example of how the ground has shifted. But you're certainly right. This spring, when the conflict with Hamas erupted or flared up again, the fact that Sisi was ready to come forward and being helpful did provoke some gratitude, we have to say, in the Biden administration, some sense of, hey, you know, let's remember how useful he can be at certain times. 
But it's also important to remember that Sisi wasn't just doing that for the United States. He was doing it because it was good for Egypt, too. It's not good for Egypt when Hamas and Israel are at each other's throats. So again, it's an example of where we shouldn't overestimate how much Sisi was doing that as though he was handing a security present to the United States when he was doing something that was in his own interest, which he might well have done even if the U.S. were not in play there. But we have to remember President Biden decided in September not to waive conditionality and withhold $130 million out of the $300 million in conditioned aid. The administration reportedly communicated new conditions for the aid to be released, demanding that Egypt end series of persecutions against civil society organizations and drop charges against or release 16 individuals. Did that work? I think so far we can't say definitively whether it worked or not. I would say it's probably not working yet because I think Sisi has learned that if he waits this out, he'll eventually get what he wants. But we have noted in the last four or five months he's gone through some of the motions of saying, no, no, I'm doing better on human rights. Look, I have a new human rights policy. I'm taking this or that initiative. This person got off with the light punishment. But we don't see a real fundamental change in Sisi's behavior. But it was a pretty weak pat on the wrist, if you will, the $130 million out of the overall relationship. It was not a very strong signal to CC. And I think the signal he took away was, it's a pat on the wrist, but I can keep on being myself and I'll basically get what I want. So until the United States steps up its stance on human rights in Egypt, I don't expect we'll see much change in the really terrible situation that exists in Egypt. So to what extent can assistance be used as leverage by the U.S. to push for transition to real democracy in Egypt and respect of human rights? I don't think the U.S. military assistance to Egypt is enough of a lever in itself to change the whole political direction of Egypt. But I do think if properly sort of employed as a lever, it can at least try to trim or limit the excesses of Sisi's campaign against human rights in Egypt. So I don't think we should put it in terms of can the United States force a change towards democracy in Egypt so much as can the United States at least push the government to limit just some of the outer boundaries of the terrible things that it's doing, I think is a more realistic expectation. You're listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our guest is Thomas Carruthers, Senior Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and co-author of the recent paper, Navigating the Democracy Security Dilemma in U.S. Foreign Policy, Lessons from Egypt, India, and Turkey. I'm Carol Castiel, along with VOA Senior Analyst Mohammed El Shanawi. This is a reminder that our PCUSA podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to Tony Zola, one of our most loyal listeners and fans based in Thailand. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. We'll back to our special guest, Thomas Carruthers, And Thomas, while we may come back to Egypt, let me now ask you to turn to the case of Turkey. This is a very important country, strategically located. It's a NATO ally, a Muslim-majority democracy, at least on paper. So talk about the challenges with Turkey under the leadership of Recep Tayyip Erdogan and how he has really eroded so many of the freedoms in Turkey and how that presents a problem for our security relationship. Well, in Turkey, we see an example of a country 
whose backward motion on democracy, which has taken place over the last 10 years, but especially the last five or so years in Turkey, coincides with or has been part and parcel of the deterioration of the security relationship between Turkey and not just the United States, but Europe and the West generally. The two go hand in hand and are clearly related. And that as President Erdogan has had a sort of go-it-alone approach to Turkey's foreign policy, in which he sort of says Turkey is an independent actor that is not going to partner closely with any one country, but just follow its own path and move away from its traditional position as a NATO member. That's been an integral part of his political strategy, which is to say Turkey is kind of alone in the world politically. We need to do what we have to do. Others may not like what I'm doing politically at home, but too bad. Turkey is supreme in and of itself and sort of stick it to the world, frankly. And so unfortunately, it's a case of democratic regression and security regression at the very same time. And we're really unlikely to see a change in Turkey's security profile until there's real political change in Turkey. So do we have any, that is the United States or Europe, any type of leverage with Turkey? One time they wanted to be part of the European Union. I don't know whether that's just completely off the table given it's backsliding. And what about its reliance on Russia in many ways? Is that becoming a threat to the United States and Europe? Well, the United States doesn't really have many levers over Turkish foreign policy or Turkish domestic politics. Turkey is a big, important country with a sizable economy and a powerful foreign policy of its own. The United States has tried to put some limits on what Turkey is doing. So, for example, saying if you want to buy these Russian missiles, you're going to pay a price in terms of the kind of cooperation you're going to have with the United States, or maybe in terms of if you want to buy more U.S. fighter planes, that's going to be difficult for us if you're doing these things with the Russians. So there are some ways that you can show Turkey there are consequences of their actions that are going to hurt their overall robustness of their own security profile. In terms of levers on Turkey's domestic politics, it's very hard because Turkey is a country that doesn't really depend on external assistance. And so as Erdogan has moved backward down the democratic road, it's been hard for Europe and the United States to do much more than just lament it and say, you're paying a price in terms of your friendship with us. So Turkey is a really unfortunate case where the backward motion has gone together on both the democracy and security fronts. And the United States and Europe have not been able to do much about it beyond regret it and show the consequences to Turkey in some ways of this backward motion. Mohammed, you have a question. Yeah, the Biden administration has publicly and privately raise democracy and rights issues with various security partners who are undemocratic or democratically backsliding. How do you explain its cautious approach towards some of them like Egypt and Saudi Arabia? Well, there's some places where I think the cautious approach, Mohammed, comes from two things. One, an assessment that the United States really wants to maintain the security or economic relationship. And two, not very much optimism about the possibility of change. I think, unfortunately, U.S. policymakers have gotten in the mindset that Saudi Arabia and Egypt are where they are in terms of being autocracies, and it's just hard to foresee change. It's different if you take a case like India, a country that was a thriving democracy for decades but has been moving backward in recent years. There, I think the Biden folks feel that if they can try to really talk to Modi, the leader of India, and say to him, look, this is really not in your own interest that you're moving backward on democracy in terms of your trade relationships, security posture with us and others. They feel that there's some hope that Indian democracy is still in the balance. 
Whereas they, in some ways, have a, such a pessimistic view of Saudi Arabia and Egypt that they're less motivated to try to do very much. So I think that comes from, as I say, both view that these relationships are quite important to the United States and pessimism about the possibility of change. But many parts of the U.S. defense, intelligence, and diplomatic establishments strongly believe in the value of close partnerships with countries like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, while they are representing a counter-democracy axis in the Middle East and in North Africa. What's your take on that? I think, unfortunately, what you say is true, and I think it's something that could and should be changed. I think the United States can have a different approach to Egypt. I think a tougher love approach, or even not very much love at all, would be better. I don't think the United States is as dependent on Egypt in security terms as it sometimes thinks it is. I think that Egypt uh, would continue to pursue the main lines of its own security policy, largely the same whether or not the United States was giving it all of the assistance that the United States currently does. And I think the United States is behind the times on Egypt. I think we've failed to take on board the fact that Egypt is both a worse case politically than we sometimes seem to say. It has really gone into the dark ages. And secondly, that that's not going to last. The Egyptian population is reaching a breaking point. There's a whole generation of people there who are very, very frustrated, particularly in the middle class who are not benefiting from this current regime. So I think the United States government could and should lean forward more on Egypt and say this is crucial to potential change in the Arab world that would be good for the Arab world, good for its citizens, and good for the United States as well. If we talk globally, the United States engaged in counterterrorism cooperation with 85 countries between 2018 and 2020, most of which are democratically deficient. How did such cooperation undermine the image of the U.S. as the leader of the free world with values of freedom, human rights, and democracy? You know, unfortunately, I think the image of the U.S. as a leader of the free world has inevitably been pretty bumpy or pretty bumped in different ways for a long time. Few people in the world have any illusion that the United States is a kind of noble pro-democratic actor. It has had security partnerships with all kinds of countries for a long time. But I think the Biden folks would like to change that. I think this is an administration that's really serious about leaning forward on democracy and doing better, particularly after the previous administration. But to do so, they're going to have to face some of these hard cases like India, like Egypt, like Turkey, and say, we can't produce miracles here. We do have important security equities at stake, but we can say more what we believe in. We can try to appeal to these own countries' self-interest. They can and should do better. So we're not looking at drastic change here, but I think if the Biden administration can at least show that it is really engaging, it's not fawning over dictators the way the previous administration did, they will be able to at least help strengthen that image. They won't be able to turn the United States into a shining emblem of democracy around the world. No country is that. But I think we can improve the image and improve the reality behind the image. Tom Carruthers, let me turn back to the example of India. You say in your paper that U.S. policymakers and outside experts believe that India will be less diplomatically and economically successful if it continues to expand discrimination against minorities and constrain basic freedoms and thus be a less robust security partner for the United States over time. Could you elaborate on that? Because it is an extremely important country now, particularly with respect to the Indo-Pacific and the U.S. strategy to combat China. It's a part of the Quad, that important alliance 
India, United States, Japan, and Australia. So talk about how its internal dynamics with respect to backsliding on democracy, you know, might hinder that kind of cooperation and credibility. Well, I would point out to our Indian friends and say, look at the case of Turkey. 20 years ago, Turkey was pretty popular on Capitol Hill. It had a lot of friends in the Senate and the House willing to go the extra mile for Turkey on certain trade benefits, on certain kinds of economic relationships. Today, Turkey has almost no friends on Capitol Hill. Turkey is held in very low regard by U.S. senators and U.S. representatives because of its persecution of Turks, its persecution of some Americans on trumped-up political charges, and because of its overall democratic backsliding. So there's a real price to pay for a U.S. ally if it moves backward democratically, and Turkey is paying that price in terms of economic relationships further security cooperation and so forth. So I think when Secretary of State Blinken went to New Delhi last summer, he did try to convey a message to Prime Minister Modi and say, you could have such a fuller cooperation with the United States if you were moving forward on democracy rather than moving backward. It is in your own interest to think that way and to move that way. We're not doing it just because we're holding up some high principle that we think you ought to meet. We do happen to believe in that principle, but because it is in your interest, The allies who really have the most complete relationships with the United States, whether it's the UK or Australia or Japan or others, are democracies where we feel a genuine comfort of values, harmony with them. And India could be such a country too. It was for a while, but it's losing that. And that would be a shame, but also concrete damage for India's interests. And Tom, what about the problems we're having here at home with respect to democracy. We're very polarized. Just this past week, we commemorated the January 6th insurrection, an attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election, which was promulgated by the former president, the mob that attacked the Capitol. So we are, in fact, experiencing somewhat of an erosion of democracy here in this country, or at least we don't have a common definition of it. How much of a problem is that as the United States pursues its U.S. foreign policy interests balancing democracy and security. Well, of course, the damage to U.S. democracy, which is considerable, as you say, Carol, hurts both our image, credibility as a pro-democratic actor in the world. There's no question about that. A U.S. official goes to talk to a senior counterpart in another government about democracy. Of course, that official is going to look him or her in the eye and say, well, maybe you should apply some of these lessons to yourself. And he or she will be right in saying that. But the fact that the United States has democratic problems does not mean the United States should be paralyzed in supporting democracy elsewhere and trying to both help democracy abroad and work on democracy at home at the same time. The fact that we are imperfect, not just imperfect, but badly flawed and struggling, in a way should steal our resolve and make us say, these issues are really at stake in today's world. We're not giving up. And we're not just going to turn inward and do nothing about democracy and rights in the world for some indeterminate period of time while we, quote, get our house in order, we are going to fight on both fronts to do better. So I really feel strongly that we have to be both humble and honest and forthright about our own shortcomings. But to say that that doesn't mean we don't care about that Egyptian who's been tortured in jail, about that Indian community that's being discriminated against, about that Turkish person who's languishing in a Turkish jail because of trumped-up charges. Of course we still care about those things. And yes, we have problems at home, but we care about them too. 
That's very well said. And of course, it's important that we express that because our detractors, the likes of Russia and China, will certainly harp on those imperfections and try to accuse the United States of promoting values that it doesn't abide by itself. So as you said, we are not perfect, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to fulfill our values. Mohammed, did you have another question? Yes. President Joe Biden pledged to put the defense of democracy and protection of human rights at the center of U.S. foreign policy. Would the Biden administration be able to balance its pledge with U.S. security interests? It will be able to do that only step by step, issue by issue, country by country. It won't be able to do that in some sweeping way. It will do that by saying, in our relationship with India, we are engaged on these issues and trying to push. In our relationship with Egypt, we are trying to do better than previous administrations did on that. In our relationship with Turkey, we are showing we care about that. So we can't expect a dramatic change, but what we will hope to see is in 5, 10, 15 of the key countries that the administration recognizes these issues, which it does, but really takes them seriously and says, we're not just going to trade them away or just treat them as nice frosting on the policy cake. We are going to get into the heart of that cake and show that we really care about those issues. There isn't some single sweeping gesture. Instead, the administration needs to just carry through its rhetoric down to the ground to show that in each of the places where the rubber is really hitting the road on democratic backsliding or democratic erosion, that it's engaged and that it's trying to do its best. That's, I think, the most that can be expected of any administration. We can't expect miracles when it comes to foreign policy. Foreign policy is not a game of black and white. It's a question of small, iterative gains in which you take principles, advance them bit by bit, and show a real commitment to them. I think there's a possibility this administration can move in that direction, but there are a lot of temptations and things that can pull you back away from such a path. Talking about backsliding, military coup leaders in Sudan did some window dressing by reinstating Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdouk, but he resigned. And Senator Chris Coons, a member of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said Hamdouk's resign cements the October 25 military coup and exposes the intentions of Sudan's military leaders to cling to power and continue to sabotage the country's transition toward democracy. What should be the U.S. reaction to what's happening in Sudan? The administration has faced a number of coups since it took office in January last year. There have been coups in Guinea, Mali, Chad of a sort, presidential self-coup in Tunisia, coup in Myanmar, coup in Sudan. So they're facing this issue in many different countries. They've been trying in these different countries to draw some lines and say the United States is trying to push governments to articulate a path back to civilian pluralistic elected rule. It's trying to impose sanctions where appropriate. In Myanmar, the United States has imposed a number of sanctions. In Sudan, I think the administration's been struggling a bit. Sudan's a country which the United States would really like to be stable and to sort of move forward and had hopes that it was doing so in the previous period of the power sharing. And I think the administration was clinging to a bit of hope that the face-saving solution that you referred to was going to stick and the United States could go back to a certain normality. But I think the fact that the face-saving solution has now fallen through, and it's evident that Sudan really is under military rule, for certain, the administration is going to need to define a policy that articulates a path back to elected civilian rule and puts some teeth into the U.S. stance with respect to that goal. Well, Tom, speaking of backsliding countries, of course, Sudan is very unfortunate, and we all hope to see 
the democratic activists coming back to the fore and democracy restored so it can get on with the transition. But what about Tunisia? You just mentioned Tunisia, one of the only Arab Spring countries that really succeeded, and now it's backsliding again. What should the United States do with respect to Tunisia? The administration has been trying since the presidential self-coup last year to engage with Tunisia's leadership, trying to say the United States cares, hopes for better from Tunisia, would like to see a definite roadmap back to democracy. It's been difficult. This Tunisian leader is very sure of himself, is not that interested in the opinion of others, and believes that he has the people behind him. And there was a lot of popularity to at least his initial actions, although that popularity has begun to decline as economic and political realities have sunk in over the last four or five months. So I think the United States is going to have to, again, show that it's not giving up. We're not going to settle for face-saving and the facade of democracy and say, no, we're going to keep articulating goals that we think are realistic for the Tunisian political system, and we're going to continue to condition our relationship with Tunisia on the basis of achieving those goals. So the administration's in for the medium term, at least on Tunisia, and is going to need to keep making it a priority because we have to fight the tendency to slip back into saying, as long as they're stable, they'll get there on their own, we're fine. So we're going to need to keep engaging, keep defining goals, and keep applying pressure where possible. Thomas Carruthers is Senior Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's co-author of the recent paper, Navigating the Democracy Security Dilemma in U.S. Foreign Policy. Tom, thank you so much for your terrific insights on this very important topic. Carol, it's been a pleasure to be with you and with Mohammed. Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. Joining me on the program was VOA Senior Analyst Mohammed El Shanawi. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.